The following is offered by Discerning Hearts, a 501c3 nonprofit Catholic apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation through the use of new media. To download this selection, or to browse hundreds of other programs, or to contribute to our mission with a charitable donation which is fully tax-deductible, visit our website at discerninghearts.com. Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for Scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's Word and apply His message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today it's part two of the Gospel of John, chapter 19. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Eusebius writes that Pilate was forced to become his own murderer and executioner and thus divine vengeance. (laughs) Some scholars disagree with that, but Eusebius does record that. Uh, It was a self-inflicted knife. Early scripture commentaries note that Pilate knew Christ was innocent, but he caved into popular opinion, careerism, and peer pressure. The Abyssinian and Greek Orthodox churches consider his wife a saint, Saint Claudia Procula, and celebrate her feast day on October 27th. Now, the Jews answer Pilate, we have a law, and according to that law, Jesus ought to die because he has claimed to be the Son of God. Now, for the Jews, that is sheer blasphemy. The charge for his death is blasphemy. And Pilate therefore said to Jesus, do you refuse to speak to me? Do you not know that I have the power to release you and I have the power to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no power over me unless it had been given to you from above. And therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Jesus says the ones who handed him over to Pilate are guilty of a greater sin. And who would that be? Who is it that handed Jesus over to Pilate? The first one was Judas, one of his own. The second one, the high priest Annas, the original high priest, then he hands him over to Caiaphas, the pseudo high priest that had been assigned by Rome. From then on, Pilate tried to release Jesus, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are no friend of the emperor. Everyone who claims to be a king sets himself against the emperor. Pilate entered his headquarters again and asked Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer, silencio. And when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside and Pilate sat down on the judge's bench at a place called the stone pavement or in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now, I'm going to be giving you some irony alerts because John is a master at using irony. He's ironic. This is what irony is, a state of affairs or an event that seems deliberately contrary to what one expects and is often amusing as a result. Also, a literary technique originally used in Greek tragedies by which the full significance of a character's words or actions are clear to the audience or reader, although unknown to the character. So John's going to use some very dramatic irony here. Jesus is the judge, okay, and he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. So the judge of all the world is being judged by a man. Pilate sits down on a judgment seat to judge God. He sits down to judge the Lord of the universe, to judge truth himself. Later, Jesus will sit down at the right hand of the Father on his mercy seat cover, and he will judge Pilate, and he will judge each and every single one of us as well. 
And it's his word that's the judge. His word is true. You're studying his word. That's what judges us. Did we do what it said or not? Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover, and it was about noon. And he said to the Jews, here is your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate asked them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. The chief priest said, we have no king but the emperor, Caesar Tiberius. Irony alert, okay. This is total irony because it absolutely goes against the first commandment of the Jews that God gave them in Exodus chapter 20 when it was the top commandment and God used the most verbiage to tell them, but you will have no other gods, no other kings, no other husbands before me. I am the Lord your God. You shall not bow down to them. You shall not worship them. We have no king but the emperor Tiberius Caesar. That was the fastest growing religion in the Roman Empire, the imperial deity. Every emperor was a god, starting with Julius Caesar, posthumously named God. His son was son of God, prince of peace, bring Pax Romana to Rome. So on and on, every emperor became a god, a god, a god, a god. And they're saying, we have no god but this god, Caesar. Caesar Tiberius, the Roman emperor from 14 to 37 AD, a member of the imperial deity, a self-proclaimed god. They have broken the first commandment, the chief priests, the authorities, the high up Jews. They're saying Jesus is guilty of blasphemy. He's 100% innocent. <laughs> he is the son of God. He's just telling the truth. They're 100% guilty of worshiping false gods like Caesar Tiberius. Then Pilate handed him over to be crucified. And they took Jesus and carrying the cross by himself. That's interesting. Because the synoptics all have him with Simon of Cyrene at some point. And in John, it says by himself, at least the start of the Via Della Rosa. The fifth station of our stations of the cross is Simon of Cyrene helping Jesus to carry his cross, as mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They took Jesus and carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is called the place of the skull, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha, the place of the skull. Now, people will try to show you some mountain that looks like a skull, and you're like, uh-huh, I see it, yeah, uh, no. Uh, and and 2,000 years ago, yeah, I see the skull. No, that's not it. The place of the skull is called Golgotha. And we had that southeast corner pinnacle of the temple where he was looking down, where Satan tempted him to jump, and he was looking down into the Kidron Valley and the Mount of Olives and the Garden of Gethsemane last week. Up here now, we have Golgotha and the tomb of Jesus Christ, a garden tomb given to him by Joseph of Arimathea. Today, a Catholic church has been built over this site. It's called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And Golgotha, the rock, is in there, and the tomb of Christ. It was originally built by Constantine's mother, St. Helen. The emperor Constantine in 330 AD had this church built over this holy site that pilgrims had venerated for years, and both of them become saints, St. Constantine and Helen, his mother. Some of you have been there. But I want you to know this whole city was wiped out in 70 AD. The temple and the whole city utterly destroyed, and it was devastating. It was gone until Emperor Hadrian, ruling over the Roman Empire from 117 to 138, decided to rebuild Jerusalem. And he named it Colonia Aelia Capitolina, a Roman colony. And it had been in ruins since 70 AD. 
He wanted to rebuild it in about 130 AD and he thought reconstructing Jerusalem would be a gift back to the Jewish people. And the Jews awaited in hope because after Hadrian visited, they were going to rebuild, hopefully rebuild that second, that temple, get that temple rebuilt. But then Hadrian visits and he says, oh, this will encourage much sedition. And what is sedition? Conduct or speech inciting people to rebel against authority or a state or a monarch. So Hadrian got cold feet. The Jewish people were still rebelling against Rome at that time. It took three years just to suppress the Jews. This enraged Hadrian, and he said, forget it. He said, forget it. I am going to erase Judaism from this province. Circumcision was forbidden. The Latin province named Iudia, Judea, was renamed to Syria, Palestinia, and the Jews were all expelled from the Holy Land, gone. Emperor Hadrian decided to rebuild that into a colony that would be inhabited by his legionaries where they would train. And his new plans included temples to major deities, Roman gods, especially Jupiter Capitolinus, because there was a great temple to Jupiter in Rome, and they would duplicate that and replicate that and put a temple to Jupiter in Jerusalem. Jupiter is the counter, the Roman god for Zeus, the Greek god. Now the Jews get banned from the Holy Land until the 7th century. Gone. But Christians are granted entry in the 4th century. And we know that because the Bordeaux Pilgrim is a book that we can read. It's an account of Christian Pilgrim going to the Holy Land. And he records his whole trip. And he made the trip in 333 A.D., And it started in Bordeaux, France. He's anonymous, but he describes all the places he went to and what they looked like and what they were. Roman Emperor Constantine I ordered the construction of Christian holy sites in the city of Jerusalem, including the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. So Jesus' crucifixion took place outside the wall, the old city wall, but when Hadrian rebuilt, a new city wall was pushed out further. And so his area becomes inside the city limits now of Jerusalem where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is built over. When you go there, you'll go up some stairs, very steep stairs. It's as if you're climbing the Mount Calvary yourself. This is also where Abraham sacrificed Isaac. It's Mount Moriah or Mount Calvary. And you're climbing up very, very steep, steep stairs to go up Calvary. And when you get there, it's the Chapel of Calvary where Jesus Christ was crucified. And it belongs today to the Greek Orthodox. It's decorated with lamps and candles in their tradition. There's usually a long line of pilgrims waiting to touch the rock under the altar, the actual rock that was Calvary where his cross was. Pilgrims kneel there and pray at the foot of the cross. They place their rosaries or crucifixes there. They want to touch it. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. Both Mary and John are standing at the sides flanking Jesus, and there's a rock that you can touch underneath the altar. But where no one ever goes and most people miss it is right below. That's upstairs. And if you go down, and then if you go down another step to the basement, don't you dare miss the Chapel of Adam because that's Golgotha. That's the place of the skull. And there's a rock. There's a glass window with a rock. And no one even goes down there because they don't know about it. But there's a glass with the rock. And that's where they say Adam's skull was. Because the Jews believed that creation started at the Temple Mount. And that's where the Garden of Eden was. And that's where Adam died and was buried. And his skull is there. And the cross was right on top of the skull of Adam. So when the new Adam was crucified, his blood dripped down onto the old Adam and set him free. 
Bartholomew writes about this. Who's Bartholomew? Bartholomew is another name of Nathaniel. And you know Nathaniel from John's Gospel when Jesus said, Oh, Nathaniel, I love you. There's no guile in you. There's no duplicity in you. He saw him under a fig tree. Oh, you're going to see greater things than this, Nathaniel. Bartholomew is his name also. Jesus, and so this is a writing, the apocryphal gospel of Bartholomew. Jesus answered and said, Blessed art thou, Bartholomew, my beloved, because you saw this mystery. Now I'm going to tell you all the things whatsoever you ask me. For when I vanished away from the cross and I went down into Hades, that I might bring up Adam and all them that were with him according to the supplication of Michael the archangel. This is the spot Bartholomew was writing about. The chapel of Adam, the place of the skull, Golgotha, right under the crucifixion, directly under it. There's even a crack in the rock where the earth quaked and split the rock at the moment of his crucifixion when the temple was torn, the curtain in the temple was torn. So you will see many Eastern Orthodox Russian icons with the skull of Adam at the base of the cross. Watch for this because you're going to start seeing it everywhere in all these old paintings. The skull of Adam is right under the cross, the place of the skull, Golgotha, the place of the skull. Now, when you go to the sepulcher, it's a very busy place. It's the tomb of the risen Lord, and you think it's going to be quiet, and you're going to sit and pray. No, <laughs> because it's so many people. It's so universal. The Latin Roman rite is there. The Franciscan friar minors have been mandated to protect the places in the Holy Land for Catholics and for all people. And that came by a special mission that was confided in them by the Holy See, by the Vatican in 1342, when St. Francis visited a sultan in Egypt in 1219 and was given this job to protect these holy places. So the Franciscans run the Catholic liturgies there. You have to check with them. You have to book with them. And then there's a Greek Orthodox presence. And then there's an Armenian Orthodox presence. Alexandrian and Syrian traditions are there. Coptic Orthodox are there. Ethiopian and Etrian churches. Alexandrian tradition from Egypt. Syriac, Syrian Orthodox, and Antiochian Rite is there. And the Ethiopians or the Abyssinians are there. And they still keep to the Levitical laws of circumcision and governing all the food laws and ritual purities. So... Everyone wants a piece of this because he's the Lord of all of us. And all these religions claim Jesus as Lord and want a piece of this most important real estate in the world. They were crucified there with him, says John, two others, one on either side with Jesus between them. I want to go to Luke for a minute because Luke gives us a little more info about these two criminals. Two others, criminals, were led away and put to death with Jesus. One, the good thief, or we call him the penitent thief. His name in history is Dismas. The bad thief on the left side, Dismas is on the right of Jesus. On the left is the bad thief. His name is Gustus. One of the criminals who was hanging there kept deriding Jesus and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and save us too. But the other rebuked him and said, Do you not fear God? Since you're under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed have been condemned justly, we're getting what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. That's Dismas. He's on the right. And he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, truly, I tell you, today, today, you will be with me in paradise. 
Now that right there is called a baptism of desire. We'll return to Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study with Sharon Doran in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. The Memorari Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly to thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen. Hello, friends. Please take a look at SeekingTruth.net and find out how you can join as an individual online learner. Sharon's lectures are presented in a rich media format with audio, video, and an abundance of beautiful images which draw you into a deeper understanding of God's Word. In addition, part of the Seeking Truth mission is to build parish life through the communal study of God's Word. To encourage parishes to begin a Bible study, Seeking Truth offers its curriculum free of charge for parishes hosting a class. Please visit us at SeekingTruth.net where you can register to bring Seeking Truth to your own local parish. We now return to Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study with Sharon Doran. That's a baptism of desire. Today you will be with me in paradise. That's Dismas the good thief. Today. So did that happen? Uh Uh-huh. Because on Saturday when Jesus harrowed hell, he's in the tomb and he goes and he preaches the gospel to the imprisoned spirits and they get the choice to be set free from the curse of the ground that cursed Adam was cursed with the ground and they were trapped and waiting for Messiah. He preaches the gospel. Look who's with him with his cross. Dismas, the good thief. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And they go together and free the imprisoned spirits. He gets to hear Jesus preach the gospel and decide yes for Jesus Christ. I love that. And I love his name. He's sometimes called St. Dismas the last minute saint. Because the last thing he stole was paradise. Isn't that great? The last thing he stole was paradise in the very last second. If he wouldn't have been crucified with Jesus that day, he wouldn't have gone to heaven, most likely. 
Praise God. We never know how he can bring good things out of bad things for those who love him. We all have until our very last breath to save our salvation or to lose our salvation. That last breath, that dying moment is very, very, very important for all eternity. So St. Dismas is harrowing Hades with Jesus Christ. And he is in paradise. And you see his cross, and I'm pointing to something on his cross, that crooked bar, that's Dismas in paradise with his cross. Now I want to tell you, that's the Eastern Orthodox cross. You have the title bar, Jesus, King of the Jews. Then you have the nailed hands bar. Then you have the slanted footrest. Why, have you seen a cross like this? Why do they slant the footrest? You just want to go and straighten it out? It's on top of Russian Orthodox, like this church in Red Square in Moscow. It's the Byzantine cross. But why they do it? Because pointing up on the right is the good thief. Pointing down on the left is the bad thief. So it's like a scale. It's symbolic of St. Dismas accepted Christ and ascended to heaven, while Gestas, the bad thief, mocked Jesus and descended to hell. It's always a reminder of that choice for Christ. The slanted footrest and the scale. Oh, irony alert. Pilate also had an inscription written and put on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the inscription because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in three languages, Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. When the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the King of the Jews. Write instead, this man claimed. He said he was the King of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Now that's sheer irony because he is the king of kings and the lord of lords he is the king of the jews they just didn't know it and he's our king too john the same writer who wrote this gospel told us in revelation grace to you and peace from him who is who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from jesus christ the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth He's the king of kings and lord of lords, and they just crucified him. And the soldiers had crucified Jesus. They took his clothes. They divided them into four parts, one for each soldier. They took his tunic. The tunic was seamless. It was woven in one piece from the top. We already heard about this tunic, this linen ephod in John 13, when he took off his outer robe to wash their feet, and he stripped down to an ephod. Remember? He washed their feet in priestly garment, a linen ephod. This is priestly garb. Because he's a priest, a forever priest, in the order of Melchizedek, he's the eternal high priest. We know it's priestly garb. David danced before the Lord, before the ark, in an ephod. And Moses was told how to make an ephod for the priest so that it would not be torn. Weave it in one piece. If he doesn't do this, he may die. He will wear them or they will bring guilt on themselves and die. This is a perpetual ordinance, a forever ordinance that a priest should wear a linen ephod. They wore it on the Day of Atonement. They had fancy clothes for all the other days. But on the Day of Atonement, they stroked down to just this linen ephod. And he goes in and puts the blood on the mercy seat to atone for the sins for one year of the Jewish people. Jesus is atoning for the sins of the world for all time in a linen ephod. It represents purity, perfection of holiness, obedience. They say, let's not tear it. Let's cast lots. Let's gamble to see who gets it. That fulfills prophecy. He said it would. They divided my clothes among themselves. They cast lots. Exactly what the soldiers did, fulfilling Psalm 22. They divide my clothes, and for my clothing they cast lots. Meanwhile, standing near the cross, there were who? His mother. 
his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. This painting shows three women. This painting shows four women. It depends where you put the comma. Because it could be his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So authors, painters have it both ways. But when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple who he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. And he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. Now, early on in his gospel, John asked us to be day counters. Remember that? He was counting days. And there was a lot of counting to be done in the beginning of his gospel because he was mimicking Genesis and in the beginning. And it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. And on day six, he made the beast, and it was good. And then on that same day six, he made us. Humanity, man and woman in his image. And he blessed us, and he said, it's very good. And very good. And then on day seven, he was done. We were in perfect union with him. They were walking in the garden with him. They were talking to him whenever they wanted. The whole trinity was there. They were sinless. It was the seventh day, and he rested and blessed it and hallowed it because it was perfection. It was Sabbath rest, total rest. And we had lost all that. Now it's day seven in John's gospel. It's here. This is going to be a new covenant, a new Sabbath rest. And he told us on that day in the early part of the gospel, he was going to a wedding, remember? And it was Cana, and it was on day seven. And he was foreshadowing what was ahead, a new creation, a new covenant, a new groom, a new bride. Endless wine, Eucharistic wine flowing forever in abundance. And when the wine failed, his mother said to Jesus, they have no wine and Jesus said, woman. And this is the next time in his gospel, he says, woman, to his mother. That's significant for John. Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? What is this between us? My hour hasn't come yet. Mom, you don't know what you're saying. We don't want to start this yet. We got a good thing going here. If we start this new creation thing, Mom, it's a done deal. There's going to be no turning back. If we start the time now, this is it. Do you realize? And she says, yes. And he says, Fill up the jars with water. It's time. So now Jesus sees his mom at the foot of the cross. And he says, woman, here's your son. And he says to John, from this hour, this is the hour. This is the new covenant. This is the new wedding. Take my mom. This is the hour of new creation. He's going to be the firstborn of all creation when he rises from the dead. But this is the hour now. And it's like a wedding at Cana, but Jesus is going to be the eternal bridegroom. And his bride is going to be the eternal church, who's still thriving today. The gates of hell have not prevailed against his bride. They've tried. And his mother is going to become the universal mother of all the living. Truly the mother of all the living. Eve was given that title after the fall by Adam. He said, you're the mother of all the living. No, she's not. Her children are spiritually dead. They're not spiritually alive. Mary's the new Eve. She's the mother of all the living. She's a universal mother. She's the new Eve, and she is the entire of all the knots of the old Eve. All those knots and all those tangles of disobedience. Mary untied with her perfect obedience to the Father's will. Be it done unto me according to your word. Yes, perfection of obedience, untying knot after knot after knot after knot of humanity. Through this perfect sacrifice, through baptism, we're brought into this holy family again. God is the universal father of all humanity. 
Mary is the universal mother of all humanity. I don't care what religion you are. She is your mother. God is your father. That's truth. Jesus is the universal brother of all humanity. He is our sibling. He is our brother. And when he is crucified, he says, it is finished. And then he bowed his head and gave something else to us. Another gift, his spirit, his Holy Spirit, the fuel that fires us and makes us light to the world. The Holy Spirit is the universal language of love. Everyone can understand it. There's no language that can't be united in God's Holy Spirit. It's for all people. And John, don't forget John. He is the universal priesthood in the order of Melchizedek under the eternal high priest of Jesus Christ. And John is the one who forever will be dressed in a linen ephod now and laid down his life to protect and defend Mary and to protect and defend the bride of Christ which Jesus has united him to through the priesthood. And every priest that comes after him will lay down in their linen ephod and give their life for the bride of Christ to make us holy and to wash us and make us pure and clean and gives us the sacraments. Here's your mother. And from that hour, he took her. And he's going to wash Mary's children and make them clean from original sin so they can enter back into the family. And he's going to feed Mary's children, her own son's body and blood, so we all get a taste of Trinity, what we're destined for and what we're heading back to. And it's just like at Cana. She is our spiritual mother, and she intuits our every need before we even know what to ask. Let's pray. Oh, dear Mary, Mary, who sits at the right of Jesus, and like Bathsheba, who could whisper into the ear of King Solomon, you, O oh Mary, Queen Mother, can whisper into the ear of King Jesus for us and intercede on our behalf. And you know our needs before we even ask you into it, before we even know that our own needs or the needs of our children or our grandchildren. You know, Mother, like a mom knows. You are our mother. God, our father, Mary, our spiritual mother, Jesus, our brother, John, symbolic of the priesthood that brings us all back through the Holy Spirit, the universal language of love, into the beatific vision of the Trinity one day. We praise you and we thank you for this cross and this new covenant. May we always cling to it. May we know truth and may the truth set us free. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. That was part two of the Gospel of John, chapter 19, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible studies, visit seekingtruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.